0: How much should Hamilton tickets cost? When should you buy or sell Bitcoin? What's the best way to help your daughter get into a famous college? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. And now a word from ZipRecruiter, our presenting sponsor. When you're at work, do you ever feel like
1: a fraud? that can be a good sign. Hey there, I'm Ian Siegel, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Being an entrepreneur and owning a business has been a dream of mine since I was a kid, and I've learned a lot of interesting things while turning that dream into a reality. Like, why feeling like a fraud at work could actually be a big opportunity. Stay tuned for that. I founded ZipRecruiter because I knew there was a smarter way for businesses to find talent. Today, companies of all sizes and industries use ZipRecruiter to fill their hiring needs. And if you're hiring now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. See you later in the show.
0: The Stanley Cup has been around for more than 100 years. It's the trophy that goes to the winner of the NHL championships. Lots of cool stories about the Stanley Cup. It's got names engraved from top to bottom. Once it gets filled up, they take the ring off and put a new ring on, save the old ring, put it in the Hall of Fame. Two babies have been baptized in the Stanley Cup. Someone always carries the Stanley Cup around when it's in public, stays with it in its hotel room. And a team, the Vancouver Millionaires, has their name engraved on the inside of it. Okay, fine, but what's the really useful thing to know About the Stanley Cup? And the answer is there's only one of them. Two teams can't win the Stanley Cup at the same time. 20 teams can't say, okay, let's share it. Without the Stanley Cup, hockey wouldn't be hockey. Hockey is hockey because of scarcity, it's a game. We're going to talk about games. I grew up playing a lot of Monopoly. I thought I liked Monopoly. But I think I liked it because I won a lot. I wasn't happy at all when I lost. Last year I played Monopoly against a Monopoly shark, and he won big time. He had his own set. He brought his own set with him to the place where we went to play. Then I realized that Monopoly is a pretty lousy game. It's a lousy game because most of the time you're playing it, it's not particularly fun. And once it's clear how the game is going to come out, it's just a grind. So we all grew up with games like this. Games that might be fun for a while. Games that we're tired of. Some people grew up thinking, I'm not into games at all. Here's the thing. We all play games. We play games all the time. They don't involve boards. They don't involve dice. But we're playing games. And understanding that we're in a game helps us. It helps us because it means we can play it better. What does it mean to play a game as opposed to merely be in real life. I think the key distinction is, in a game, we strip away all of the factors that aren't essential in terms of winning, losing. All of the parts that are there but aren't essential rules. Then once we get down to the dynamic, what we have is a schematic for real life, not actual real life. A metaphor. And then... Because we understand games, we can work our way through it, figure out which parts are important, which ones aren't, figure out which alliances make sense, and which ones are merely a distraction. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union both spent millions of dollars analyzing the game theory of how two countries locked in a battle for world dominion might behave. If you understood how one country was going to plan its strategy, you had a better chance of coming up with an alternative strategy that might end up, I don't know, not destroying the world. But in order to do that, you needed to understand what makes something a game at all. If it's not the dice and the board, then what is it? Well, as we just heard, it begins with scarcity. In order for there to be a game of any kind, There has to be something scarce, something up for grabs. It might lead to winners or losers. It might lead to allocation of resources. There's only a scarce number of Hamilton tickets. There's only a finite amount of Bitcoin. There's only a very scarce number of seats at that famous college that your daughter wants to go to. Because there's scarcity, because there's only one Stanley Cup, a game occurs. There are two ways to approach a game, of course. One is to play it because it's fun, and the other one is to play it because you need to win, because you are seeking to obtain the scarce resource, whether it's the Stanley Cup or a slot in a place where there aren't many slots. The thing is, as we play games, we get better at them. And as more people play a game, they get ever more competitive. This creates a scarcity ratchet. Something is scarce, so we build a game around it. People start playing the game with each other, maybe because it's fun, perhaps because they want the thing that's scarce, and then they get better at it. Because they get better at it, more people want to get the thing that's scarce. Because they want the thing that's scarce, the scarce thing becomes even more scarce. And so it ratchets on and on and on. The very fact that there's a game makes the thing that's scarce even more scarce. The scarcity ratchet can create problems. When you're playing a game to win, instead of playing a game because you enjoy it, scarcity gets amplified. So we end up keeping score of something that maybe we don't even care about. You can see this on social media. People figuring out shortcuts, ways to game the system so they can get followers, so they can get friends, so they can get likes, so they can win some invisible scoreboard, which ultimately means nothing. James Carse wrote a fascinating book called Finite and Infinite Games. We're going to get to infinite games in a couple minutes, but before that, let's talk about cars's understanding of what makes something a finite game. The first rule is this. People play it voluntarily, that that is in the spirit of what we are talking about. You enter a market, you enter a competition, you enter an engagement, seeking that resource that is scarce. Finite games have a definitive beginning and a definitive end. The game begins when it begins. There are often teammates. There are almost always opponents. Play occurs within boundaries. There's off the field, there's on the field. There's an accepted set of rules. It's almost impossible to play a game with somebody who's playing by different rules than you are. This is one of the most frustrating elements of work. When you show up at work thinking the rules are one thing, and the person that you are engaging with thinks they are something else. A game always has rules, but sometimes it becomes interesting when we consider what happens if the rules are changed. My friend Peter Alatka, one of the most honored game designers of all time, created a game called Cosmic Encounter. The game itself is super simple. It's a little like a multiple-person checkers game. However, at the beginning of every game, every player gets a card, and that card gives that player a new way to cheat, a really dramatic way to cheat, a way of cheating that's so dramatic, it sort of seems like the entire game is pointless because that player is going to win. However, every one of the players gets their own cheat, and so every time you play the game, it's completely different because a fundamental rule has been changed. One of the ways to think about the future, to think about what we could build, is to do just that. Look at a game in the world today, a game based on scarcity, and imagine what happens if one of the rules is changed. Steve Wozniak said, what happens if instead of a computer costing $100,000, it costs $1,000? Or the folks who have invested so much in the last 10 years into smartphones said, what if the world is pretty much the same, except Everyone has a supercomputer in her pocket, one that knows exactly where she's standing and where all her friends are. You can go down the list of the innovations that have changed things in the last decade or two, and that's how they all came about. Relax one rule and then play a new game. Within a game, there are limitations, rules, and also self limitations, things you're not willing to do. So some people, are eager to win a game even if it means burning down something that you believe in you probably don't want to play games probably don't want to compete in markets where people who do things that you don't approve of do them to win often games are not fully transparent people don't know what cards you are holding you don't know what cards they are holding They don't announce all the details of how they are making their choices. And essential, essential to almost all games in a civilized society, is that all of the people participating agree who's the winner. All of the people participating at the end agree on who won. Without this, we end up with chaos. So there you go. That is how you play the game for world domination. That is how you play the game of what happens in the next episode of Star Trek. Who is going to control the Romulan part of the universe? That is how we deal with engaging with the supermarket. Because the marketers in the supermarket are playing a game. They know you only have a finite amount of money to spend in the supermarket today. They are all investing time and energy to get more than their fair share of the money you're going to spend. So one marketer discovers that if he bribes the manager of the supermarket, gives him an extra couple hundred bucks to put their Coke or Pepsi at the end of the aisle, you're more likely to buy that brand because you saw it at the end of the aisle. They won that round of the game. The amount they spent to get on the end cap is less than the amount they profited from being in front of you. Their opponent the other Cola brand, learns from this, and maybe next time pays even more to be on the end cap. Well, the referee, the guy who owns the supermarket, is happily taking more money from each one over and over again, until finally, one of them discovers they can't pay anymore. They lose. The other guy loses. The supermarket wins. And so the game repeats. And we see this in the book business, and we see this in the business of getting a job via LinkedIn. That scarcity drives many of these decisions. So that would be it, except for a couple other things that have transpired in the last hundred years. The first is the idea of game theory, first codified by John von Neumann in 1928. It turns out that for a classically organized game, if you know the rules, You can do the math. You can do the math and figure out if there's a winning strategy. You can do the math and figure out if the person who goes first has an advantage or a disadvantage. You can figure out which rules, if changed, could shift what happens next. By understanding the theory of the game, you discover things that venture capitalists know, that marketers know, that economists know, that politicians know. That there are certain strategies that you can show up and bring to the game that change the outcome in your favor. And if the people you are playing against know those strategies and you do not, well, then you're going to lose. So back to your daughter getting into the famous college. Here's one thing we know by many measures, 50% of the people who get into Harvard get in because they got a recommendation that they play a sport, that they play a sport really well. So even though Harvard is in a Big Ten football power, turns out that playing football or fencing or squash or swimming is a really good way to get in a shorter line to get into Harvard. So that one thing you can do for your daughter when she's 11 is encourage her to start taking fencing lessons. Not because she loves fencing, but because you're playing a game. You're playing a game with a 400-year-old institution in Cambridge, Massachusetts because they have a set of rules that they don't tell everybody about. Of course, for any resource as valuable and as scarce as Harvard, there are multiple games to be played. One of them might be a game with the physics department. Turns out that the physics department doesn't often recommend incoming freshmen to the admissions people. So when they do, the admissions department pays a little bit of attention. So a game might be to build alliances, alliances with professors, to attend their lectures, to write them letters, to read their books, to engage with them as a high school senior, showing real, honest interest in the work they do. Because after all, that's a great strategy for this game. The end result is this scarce resource is now allocated differently because you saw that a game was being played. One more thing to say about finite games. One of the things that came as a result of von Neumann's work as math became integrated into a game analysis of scarcity is the idea of the prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma sounds nefarious, but it happens everywhere we go. Here is the example. Two people are caught and accused of plotting together to create a crime. The police want them to go to jail for a long time. The problem the police have is that if neither one of them rats out the other, if neither one of them speaks up, it's really unlikely that they can send them to prison for a long time. All they're going to be able to do is put them away for a year on a minor offense, the one they caught them at. So the police separate the two players, and they put them in different rooms. And they say to the players, the captives, here's the deal. If you don't say anything... We're telling you the truth. Both of you are going to go to jail for a year. But if you rat out the other guy, he's going to go to jail for 50 years and we'll let you go free. But if both of you rat out each other, you're both going to go to jail for five years. So as a player, you have three choices. Say nothing, and maybe you'll go to jail for a year, and maybe you'll go to jail forever say something, and you're either going to go free or go to jail for five years. What should you do? Well, if you do the logical math, if you do the game theory, you're going to have to rat out the other person knowing that they're going to rat out you. The end result being you both get a worse outcome than if you'd both been quiet. But here's the really cool twist. Human beings aren't completely logical. Human beings, on average, do not play games in a cutthroat way. That deep down, we understand that we are better off being part of a community, better off not playing games to win every time, but playing games to play them. As we see, games strip away the real-life stuff and let us just get to the mechanics. And if you are playing to win... And start imagining that the game you're playing is just a game, you can end up creating all sorts of negative side effects. General LeMay of the Strategic Air Command, Dr. Strangelove, the crazy scientists at RAND. If the game was, how do we win? Well, then sure, go ahead and drop 133 atomic weapons on the Soviet Union because. They only have three, but they're gonna build more. And if you're not looking in the eyes of the millions and millions of people who are gonna die, just playing a game instead, there can be tragic consequences.
2: In Less than 15 minutes from now, the Ruskies will be making radar contact with the planes. Three, when they do, they are gonna go absolutely ape, and they're gonna strike back with everything they got. Four, if, Prior to this time, we have done nothing further to suppress their retaliatory capabilities. We will suffer virtual annihilation. Now, five. If, on the other hand, we were to immediately launch an all-out and coordinated attack on all their airfields and missile bases, we'd stand a damn good chance of catching them with their pants down. Hell, we got a 5-1 missile superiority as it is. We could easily assign three missiles to every target and still have a very effective reserve force for any other contingency. Six, an unofficial study which we undertook of this eventuality indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from the remaining force which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated.
0: General LeMay's own words, there are no innocent civilians. Well, that's sort of nuts. Saying that you're going to bomb people into the Stone Age is a great way to turn it into a game and a possible way to win in the short run. But what we've seen, because we live in a finite world, is the shorter your short run, the less you're thinking about the world we have to live in. And it's the long run. The long run, as we get closer and closer to infinity, where the smartest game players are playing. Which leads to James Kars' brilliant analysis that there's a second kind of game. The second kind of game is an infinite game. The infinite game is the game we play to play, not the game we play to win. A soccer game is over when the timer goes off. A chess game is over when the king is captured. Those are finite games. But what about playing catch with your three-year-old kid? Should you throw the ball as hard as you can so you can win at catch? I don't think so. I don't think you think so either. I think we play that game to play it. That is an infinite game. 30 years ago, I was at a conference, and Bill Graham, the great concert promoter, was there. And Bill Graham... Uh, Booked the Grateful Dead, he booked Bruce Springsteen, he booked everybody who was anybody in San Francisco. I raised my hand and I said, Bill, why do you only charge $29 for Springsteen tickets? Yeah, I know, this was a long time ago. $29, why don't you charge $70, $100? Because you could get it. And he said, here's the thing. The people I seek to serve, the concertgoers, would probably pony up $80 or 100 bucks to see Springsteen but then they wouldn't have any money left for the rest of the year. I'd use them up. I might win that round of the game, but I'd lose the overall cultural battle to create music for people who wanted to hear it. Bill didn't know it at the time, but he was playing an infinite game. He was contributing to the community. This idea that we should get past the digits, the numbers, the scalpers, the shortcuts, the how much can we get for a Hamilton ticket, and instead say, how do I feed this group of people around me, pay it forward to a community, so that everything in the community gets better. That is the only game we've got. Author Simon Sinek is doing really interesting work on the juxtaposition of finite and infinite games. His point is that a company that's playing the long-term, the infinite game, the game that's not based on scarcity, but instead the game to be kept playing, often competes with someone who's playing a finite game, a short-term game, a reaction, and a tactical game. Adequately resourced, the infinite game player can outlast the finite one, because they're playing for a better reason, for a bigger win. It's not just companies like Apple or Google that have this interesting challenge. It's individuals as well. Let's go back to this idea of your daughter and Harvard. One way to do it is the scarcity ratchet. It's hard to get into Harvard, therefore it's more valuable to get into Harvard, therefore more people want to get into Harvard, therefore it's harder to get into Harvard and on and on and on. But what if that's not the game? What if the game is to live a life, to weave together community, to make a difference? What if the game is to make it so that going to Harvard isn't even important anymore? What if the game is to create education for everyone, easily accessible? What if the game is to go to whatever college or university is open to the journey that you are on, and to use that opportunity as a platform to leverage yourself ever farther by connecting with other people, not people who have the same fancy, scarce thing that you were seeking, but merely people, people on the same journey as you are. That as soon as we start playing an infinite game, that thing that used to be scarce isn't as important as it used to be. And thus we have the time and the resources and the energy to focus on the infinite instead, to play merely because we can play, to weave things together and make them ever better. It turns out that we survived the Cold War just barely, but I don't think we survived it because Rand Corporation in the United States was better at game theory than the Soviet Union, or vice versa. I think we survived it, Because a lot of people realized that winning that game wasn't going to be worth the journey. That the rules were too fragile. And that paying into the system, the only one we've got, understanding that while the earth is finite, our opportunity to create a better place for each other is infinite. That changes things. It's possible that you are listening to this podcast on an app called Overcast, made by Marco Arment. And most people who listen to it don't pay for the app because Marco's playing an infinite game. That by contributing his software to a circle of people who will benefit from it, he creates a more vibrant podcast ecosystem. That makes his life better. It makes our life better. And it makes it more likely that he can do other things with software that's valuable. We don't play an infinite game just so we can win a different finite game. We play an infinite game because it's better, because it lasts, because the act of helping our opponent, who's not really our opponent, our partner, helping our partner live a better life, that isn't just an infinite game. It's the ultimate game. I'll be back after this message from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter, to answer your questions from the last episode. To ask a question about this episode, just go to akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click on the appropriate button. We'll keep playing this game, if you will.
1: Hi again. This is Ian Siegel, CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When I was 22 years old, I was put in charge of a 40-person technology team, and to set the stage for you, I had no computer science degree and no prior management experience. I didn't feel like a fraud. I knew I was a fraud. With nothing else to go on, every day I went to the team and said, tell me exactly what you want me to do. At one point, after this had gone on for a couple months, I apologized to the team for not knowing how to do the job. They told me I was the best manager they ever had. Why? Because I listened that's the importance of listening. I hope you found it helpful. Here's something else that may be helpful. If you're hiring, you can try ZipRecruiter for free today. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's top job boards, so great candidates have a lot of different ways to find your job. To get started, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Seth. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Seth. Try it out, see how it feels, and experience how simple hiring can be. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.
0: We got a few great questions about last week's episode about placebos. If you'd like to ask a question about this week's episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. I got two relatively similar questions about self-medicating placebos.
1: Hi Seth, this is Gerard from Trinidad and Tobago, the Caribbean, sending positive vibes your way. Um, I want to talk about self-medicating, as in, how do you administer a placebo to yourself?
0: Hey Seth, this is
1: Anne-Marie from New York. I'm a first-time novelist, and I'm fascinated by the opportunity to create placebos for myself. What placebos do you use to get into focused work mode? Should I just pop a piece of candy every day before writing? Is it a matter of ritualizing things that make me feel good, like drinking coffee or reading a good response to writing I've already published? Can I reframe things that I think are crutches as placebos? What are the hallmarks of a successful placebo when it comes to doing creative work?
0: You both make a really good point, that it's easy to talk about superstition or habit or getting ourselves in a rut when what we're actually doing is seeking a placebo. So let's start with a simple example, your morning cup of coffee. I am confident that if I snuck into your house and replaced all your regular coffee beans with decaf beans, you'd still feel energized after drinking that first morning cup of coffee. Sure, caffeine is a stimulant, but an even bigger stimulant is your expectation that it's going to work. So what can the creative person do? Let's begin with the idea of mise en place putting everything where it's supposed to be. Many artists, creators, chefs, have discovered that laying it all out, putting it in place, triggers in our head the expectation that now we're going to do our work. There are many other examples. Using a special keyboard, only going to a certain cafe. Years ago, in 1983, Chip Conley the best-selling author, at the time he was like me in his early 20s, invited me and three other people to join him in a mastermind group. It was on the campus of Stanford University, not at the business school, though, in the anthropology department, in a corner of the anthropology department, a conference room that we would only use for this purpose. Every Tuesday at 4.30 p.m., we walked into that room. That room triggered all sorts of expectations. Because we didn't hang out in that room, because we didn't waste time in that room, walking into that room changed our posture, and we could do it on purpose. So the creative person, the person who's seeking to self-motivate, or self-medicate as you said, can seek these out. They're not easy to bootstrap your way into, so here's my suggestion. As soon as you have a good day, Figure out what you did just before you had that good day and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and condition yourself to understand that when you see those triggers, you're going to have a good day. It seems really corny, but it actually works. The next couple of questions were about the ethics of placebos.
1: Do you believe that there is a strong benefit to incorporating some sort of placebo? into your product to enhance the already positive benefits that your product offers. But I need more there. I need some examples of how this applies to the business world. This is a really baffling, interesting topic. And to hear your passion about it, just not sure how it relates to business. You obviously can't sell something that has no value or that has no real value. Is it all perceived value? And then does it really have value after that?
0: Let me be crystal clear. Your product needs to work your promise needs to be true. You need to build as much double-blind efficacy into what you make as you possibly can. That's your moral obligation. It's also smart business. But beyond that, leaving out the placebos makes no sense. Consider Dasani water. If you want to communicate to people that your water is extra refreshing and extra pure, one thing you could do is what the folks who make Dasani did, which is spend a few million dollars so that when you open the bottle, it goes tss. It doesn't go tss because it has bubbles. It doesn't have bubbles. It makes that noise because they worked very hard to have it make that noise. And that noise is a cue. It goes straight to our brain. It creates an expectation, an expectation of freshness and thirst quenching. It's not surprising to us to discover That if we go to a doctor's office that's a little filthy, we're less likely to get well than if we go to one that feels spotless. Well, we can transfer that thinking. It turns out that a diamond ring purchased by two people about to get married, that's sold to them by a respectful salesperson under beautiful lighting, is probably going to have a bigger impact than one that, I don't know, is bought in a pawn shop. It's the same diamond, but it is surrounded by a story that changes the way we feel about it. So yes, building a story into what we make, into what we sell, into how we deliver it, a story that leverages the truth that's already there, can create all of the same effects that a powerful placebo does in medicine. And it's worth noting, in both this case and the previous case of self-administering placebos, that it's even more profound with the nocebo, that walking into a restaurant with apparently dirty plates will cost us our appetite. It's not the food that did that, it's the story. The same with the self-talk of a creative person who believes she's in a rut, who believes she's stuck. That self-talk creates the truth that you're stuck. So our job as someone who's seeking to change behavior, ours or other people's, is to find these moments of operant conditioning, to find these cues and clues and offer them up to make the product or service we make even more effective. If you've got questions about this episode, I hope you'll check out akimbo.link and click the appropriate button We'll listen to your question, and if we can, we'll include it in a future episode. See you next time. People are talking about the marketing seminar. I was completely blown away. It is incredibly comprehensive, crazy, crazy, crazy useful. It's it's
1: easily worth five times what I paid for the course. The content in the class was awesome. What I learned, I actually could apply immediately. And get results. I thought it's going to be kind of an automated course. And the big shock is the
0: cohort. I have never felt more supported in any online program I've done. And that actually changed the way we talk about the project. It changed the way we promote it on our website. I use it in other projects. A way to really evaluate
1: it and to apply it that I have never experienced anywhere else.
0: It's so much more than just a marketing seminar. Find out more at themarketingseminar.com.